Jesus is safe and sound in Samaritan Ephraim when approached by some bold Pharisees with critical questions. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will answer some questions. We return to Luke chapter 17, and I don't want to be dogmatic about Jesus' location here. We were in John last week, which told us after raising Lazarus, Jesus went to Ephraim. Going back to Luke could be a flashback to his time in Perea. These passages don't really require any chronology. They aren't even designed for chronology. It was never the author's intent. I'm kind of breaking everything by even attempting chronology, but we're in so deep now. So we continue. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What a great question. When is the kingdom coming? Jesus has been saying it is coming soon, but here he clarifies in a really important way that I think we all still need to hear. His kingdom won't be like the kingdoms of this world. Forget thrones and castles. Forget warriors, wars, and kingdoms being started on the deaths of others. Jesus' kingdom, once established, won't be one that you can say, Look, here it is. If God's realm is one place and ours is another since Eden, and the kingdom is the overlap, like the tabernacle and the holy of holies before it, then it is just in our midst. The religious leaders wouldn't like this implication because it expands God's presence outside the temple. And the zealous Jews wouldn't like this implication either because they wanted a champion king to overthrow the Romans and establish Jerusalem as the capital of the world. The Jewish people were praying regularly for the coming of God's kingdom. Many still do. They picture this as including the restoration of Israel after their pretty consistent historical exile. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples at the end of year two? He told them to tell the people in all the villages that the kingdom of God has come near to you. The presence of the disciples bringing hope in miracles in some way brought the kingdom of God near to people. And remember when Jesus cast out a demon and was accused of working for Satan? And Jesus said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And in Luke 16, when Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcefully urged into it. What Luke is trying to get across, by the way, those are all in Luke. What he was trying to get across to the reader is that the kingdom of God was near, 
was upon and even in the people of Jesus' day because of the preaching, the healing, and the ministry of Jesus. The problem for so many is that it's so far outside the expectation that they're missing it. Daryl Brock and Gary Burgess wrote a commentary on Luke, and they wrote this about this passage. It is best, therefore, to take verse 21 as teaching that the initial manifestation of the kingdom has come with Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees do not need to look for the kingdom coming in the sky because it's already here in him. If they would just consider all the evidence around that portrays the presence of God's delivering power, they would have not have been wondering where to look. As Luke has said in various ways, the time of fulfillment is present in Jesus. End quote. This type of kingdom can create opportunity for deception by corrupt leadership. Right? And Jesus warns the disciples about this. Just as the Jewish people prayed for the coming kingdom, they also spoke of a future era that they called the days of the Messiah. And if you miss one, you would look for another. Verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. So Jesus replaces the days of the Messiah with the days of the Son of Man, the preferred title for himself. And there are many things going on here. The disciples will long to see the days of the Son of Man in the sense that he will be gone from this plane and he will be missed in that way. The Jewish people who do not trust in Jesus as the Messiah will always be seeking another and longing desperately for it. But Jesus says, if anyone says, look there, or look here, just like the kingdom is not that tangible, Jesus won't be tangible in this era either. And I feel that pain daily. But if someone says he's at the theater or he's in the forest, he is assuredly not. Such is the challenge for us pursuing God in the intangible era. According to Dr. Charles Feinberg, a Jewish scholar, in Israel's history since the first century, there's been 64 different people claiming to be the Messiah. And now outside of Judaism, there have been many more. But again, Jesus won't secretly appear in a forest. He has physically been born under a bright star. He has been physically active, bringing justice and hope to the people of Judah all over Israel. He is facing a very physical death, which will be followed by a physical resurrection, and then a physical ascension into God's realm. And none of this has been secret. Any other appearances of Jesus will be public and obvious too. How can I be sure this is true? Jesus says in verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and, the, and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The kingdom will not come without first Jesus suffering at the hands of men, being rejected by his people, and this will be public. And sometimes I wonder what the Pharisees who were in on the plot against the Lord, were thinking when Jesus said he must suffer first. And then Jesus offers a deep simile of 
public physical events that occurred in the past that are similar to the initiation of the days of the Son of Man. Verse 26, Just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Hmm. So the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are similes. They were both decreation events where God let go of his control of order and allows chaos to crush in upon a rebellious humanity. In these two events, there was physical public destruction. Another physical public destruction will initiate the days of the Son of Man. And I believe this is his own death, a moment where God will let go of control of order and allow chaos to crush in upon Jesus, not because he is rebellious humanity, but as we understand it, for rebellious humanity. When the floodwaters came, you can imagine people running for their possessions and trying to get them to high ground. And when the fire fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife looked back with longing for the great cities. Jesus warns the disciples to not be like Lot's wife. To not look back at your old life, but to understand your new one following the crucified Jesus means crucifixion awaits you too. It could be physical. It could be some other way that you carry your cross, but the life of following Jesus is cruciform. Some people will be arrested out of their bed. Some will be taken from the mill, one taken from the field. In the earliest days of the Son of Man, after Jesus' death, will be the death of his followers. But if you're a pre-tribulational premillennialist, you read this as Jesus' second coming and all the disappearing bodies of the rapture. This interpretation takes the destruction of the day, uh, the day of the Lord, and says that it is what is being compared to the days of judgment that Jesus is riffing off of. If there is an element of judgment here, and people needing to run for their lives and to not look back, I believe that it's the destruction of the nation of Israel that occurs within a generation of Jesus' death and is a consequence for his rejection. Also, I think this is key. Looking at the day of the Lord as a decreation 
um, when heaven and earth become one is a misapplication of what's really going to occur. The Day of Atonement was a time where blood was splattered around the Holy of Holies to purify God's space from our impurities. And the sins of the people were placed on a goat and sent out into the wilderness. And I think if the day of the Lord and the day of atonement coincide in the end of days, in the great reveal, the purification of the space is from Jesus' blood, not the blood of his enemies. And so I think the, the chaos destruction of Jesus' body is the simile here. I could be wrong. Just that's where I am today. His disciples ask, where will this begin? And Jesus answers where the dead body is. Likely his. And that's somber. The king will be killed. The kingdom of new life initiated at his resurrection And we do not know how long the days of the Son of Man will last before they close with the the reunification of God's realm and ours. What a time to possibly live in fear and to lose heart. Am I right? Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? If a pagan judge will bring justice to an annoying woman, wouldn't God bring justice to his own people? And the big hinge is Will he find faith? Because if he doesn't, justice looks a whole lot different. But this crowd that Jesus speaks to is laced with Pharisees full of unbelief. What about them? Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So two characters in this parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The one who is classically thought of as being righteous and the one who's classically thought as being a thief. The Pharisee's prayer was, Thank God I'm not like other men. I fast and tithe. Amen. But the tax collector's prayer was, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says the tax collector was the one justified by God, not the Pharisee. This is huge. Will God find faith on the earth? Our posture should be, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Not, Thank God I'm not like other men. Look at what all I'm doing. This is the heart of God that will pass over judgment. Not our outward appearances, but our humility and our trust. Now we turn to Matthew's authorized official account to find out how God's economy works. If sinners seeking mercy is the key and not a hard day work to earn it. Matthew 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarii a day, he sent them to his vineyard. After going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. About the eleventh hour he went out and he found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, Go to the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarii. But when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but they each also received a denarii. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. We've got five waves of hiring from the master, each one hired later in the day, the last group only really working an hour, and they're all paid the same. How this must rub the people who run Prager U the wrong way. Jesus continues to describe the coming kingdom of God, which includes all who embrace Jesus as their savior. And he reveals that his grace will be equal over all men. You may come to Christ when you're six and serve him your whole life. Or you may come to Christ at 40 and serve half a life. You may come to him on your deathbed. But all of his people receive 
the same payment for their faith. All who embrace the Savior receive entrance to the kingdom through his work, through his way. He pays. The full day's worker think this is unfair, but they are paid the agreed amount. Nobody is being ripped off. Late entries into grace still get it in full. Young, middle-aged, old, whenever you come to Christ, you get full, 100% grace. The same logic applied to the time of day could be applied to the person. The same logic would say Democrat or Republican, gay or straight, sober, drunk or high, tattooed, clean-shaven, sporting a mullet, loving guns, hating guns, being a freedom fighter or a peaceful protester, everyone gets the same prize. There isn't a special inheritance for white evangelical free market republicanism, and there isn't a special inheritance for diverse socialist liberalism. Praise God for not penalizing the late entrusting, and by the same logic, praise God for not penalizing the wrong actions if their faith is pure. This is not a message created out of man's heart. Jesus is very generous. All these promises stem from his resurrection, which he will predict again for the listening audience of 12. They have been secluded away from harm's way in Ephraim for a while, but Passover approaches. It's time for them to head to Jerusalem one last time. Matthew 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way... He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Has he ever been clearer? There's no encryption in this message. Jesus tells his friends who are the people that will take him through each step of his suffering, that the chief priests will arrest him, the Romans specifically will flog and crucify him, and then the crystal clear prediction that on the third day, he'll come back to life. This is the first time Jesus names the means of his death. It's the first mention of scourging or flogging, depending on your translation. And the disciples give absolutely no recorded response. I wonder what they could have said. Maybe they're in denial that this could ever happen. I mean, how many times has he miraculously escaped harm? As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. It's probably the fact that the kingdom is in our midst. It's here now. Jesus launched it publicly and physically. And in the same way, the days of the Son of Man will conclude with the merger of God's space and our space. In the meantime, never give up on prayer. Pray without ceasing. Pray until you hear an answer. God's justice will always be done in his timing. Persistent prayer is powerful. Keep asking for something. Haven't had a prayer answered yet? Has it been days, weeks, months, years? Keep asking. I think it's almost implied here that we also pray for his return. 
and something to the effect of his kingdom come as will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will be asked a ridiculous question by someone's mom. <laughs>